HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Berry Bisop, a refreshing West African spiced hibiscus tea. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade, from the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods, like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, You also find it in ripening foods, like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Paul DeJoe, co-founder of Mudwater, a D2C coffee alternative made of functional ingredients like chai, mushrooms, cacao, turmeric, and cinnamon. With a fraction of the caffeine, Mudwater is getting rave reviews for giving people the coffee boost they need without the dependency or the jitters. Welcome, Paul. Hey, thank you. Hi. Hi. Hey. Um, <laughs> hey, I'm super psyched you're here. I have been getting, I mentioned this to you, a lot of DMs and just a, a lot of just friends asking me to do an episode focused on hiring. And, um, you know, we are hiring and in the Slack group that we're both in, I guess a month or two ago, I kind of posted general questions about, you know, best hiring practices, onboarding in a pandemic. Um, And you immediately responded with a great book for me to read. And it just, it kind of, I think, triggered a really good discussion. Um, And like you just said before we started recording, there isn't a ton of great thought leadership. I feel like there are a lot of somewhat cheesy books about it. And like, everyone's like, it's your, you know, it's the most important thing you can do. But, you know... I think we need to talk more about it, um, especially now. So 
I am thrilled you're here. Welcome. Thank you. Um, and I'd love before we kind of dig into all of the hiring and, and unhiring and onboarding stuff, if you could tell me a little bit about you, about Mudwater, um, you know, how, how that all came together and, um, you know, what the story is. Yeah, I'd love to. And, and thanks so much for um, the opportunity. And before like, I even dig into that, I, I really love entrepreneurs. Even if you're thinking about being one, I'm, I'm always available to kind of help people think through ideas. Um, so reach out anytime. Um, I really love that. Um, Yay, they I will. Think, cool. <laughs> the people that listen to this podcast are, um, I think, I mean, for the most part, although we do have some people that I think just listen for fun, which cracks me up a little bit. Um, most everyone is sort of like a couple steps behind where you are, maybe a step ahead of where I am, you know, thinking about it. Um, but they, they definitely do use the resources um, and reach out to the, to the people on here. So um, cool. I hope they take you up on it because you've been great, even just in our little interactions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, entrepreneurs are going to save the world, right? They create jobs out of thin air. And, um, but it's also the hardest thing you could ever aspire to, to do. And so we need support groups. We need to help each other. We need to go fast and just, uh, you know, not let other people make mistakes that I did before, which is kind of what I'm going to dig into today. But uh, cool. Yeah, I can give you a quick background. It kind of leads into... I think why I've gotten to a good spot in entrepreneurship. Um, I'm, I'm actually from Youngstown, Ohio, which is like a, one of the most corrupt cities in the world and was like murder town USA <laughs> three times. And uh, my mom and dad were just like blue collar people. They just, they went to work, they worked hard and they created like a good environment for me to know that, you know, I had that kind of love if I failed, it didn't matter. And um I think that's su super important that um, I, I give credit to because later in life you realize like if you have a network of people where you can kind of fail and not be embarrassed and go back to them and they, they kind of appreciate you and appreciate the effort, that's like giving you wings. It really is. And so like finding people in circles in your life, oftentimes and sadly enough, like your family might not be that that um, safe zone for you. It's okay, but it's just reality sometimes. So um, what I think where my upbringing taught me was that um, I had to stay on the straight path because, and I, and I went away from it a couple of times, but if I didn't, it was a very real consequence. I was, my a lot of my friends were either going to jail or even wound up dead or addicted to drugs. And so it was, it was, it was a freakish like thing to think about that if I didn't work hard and, and, and I screwed up, I could be headed down like a pretty bad path. And so I was always in that mindset of like, I need to get out of here. I need to like get into a better circle or a better environment. And I, I did actually get to play professional hockey, but um, that, that was more a testament to just me trying to hustle in a back door and like not letting them kick me out. I was never really, really good. Like, I got it. I figured out how to go play prep school hockey in Cleveland by getting somebody to sign that I was a, they were my host family. So I got to go to another high school to play. And then I looked at the worst NCAA college hockey program there was. And I was like, cool, will you guys pay me to go to school? And they were like, okay. And so I went there. And then when I was uh, thinking about playing like pro, I was like, well, if I get an Italian passport, because my, my grandparents are from there, and I could probably prove that, I could probably play overseas. And so I did that. And so, like, I'm not really good. I was just like, how far can I can I keep going with this thing? And so 
people kept asking me like, why'd you stop playing? I was like, it wasn't my choice. I, w- I wasn't good enough. Um, ultimately, I, you know, I went wound up in the, the um, second tier uh, semi-pro league of like Colorado and then um, Columbus and both those teams like cut me in consecutive years. And I was like, okay, I, I got to get a real job here. So it is funny though. There are, there are two things that that makes me think of. One is that I feel like the difference between like, a pro and a non-pro is is more hustle than it is talent. For I mean, sure. we can definitely have that conversation, but it's like showing up and working harder than everyone else and just like being relentless, which actually is <laughs> kind of the difference between a lot of products that make it and a lot of products that don't. Um, Absolutely. But also I would imagine that just like walking, you know, no one asks like, well, which teams did you play for? And how, how many years did you play before you got cut? All we know is like on your resume, it yep. says hockey pro, you know, which, which was forward thinking of you um, back then for sure. It's a good talking point. And like when people ask me, um, uh, you know, the next question, I'm always like, man, I hate when I, people ask me that. Cause now I have to tell you, like, I'm not that good. I didn't play for <laughs> right. any, anybody that, you know, it's like a talking point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so what was the job that you got when you were gracefully asked not to continue <laughs> your hockey career? <laughs> Please stop showing up here. Exactly. <laughs> when they the lock cops. the door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so like I, I was doing a master's degree at Drexel, um, and in Philly, um, in my summers and we're between playing in the season. And I felt I was doing a master's degree in investment management and I fell in love with entrepreneurship because one of the courses was to go work with a startup and it was at an incubator on campus. And I loved their vision. It was a, it was a, it was a vision to unify in the entire city of Philadelphia with a transportation card. So you could get into parking meters, garages, et cetera. And I just fell in love with that vision. And I told those guys, you know, after my course was up, how do I work here for you guys full time? And they were just like, well, we don't, we don't have any money to pay you. You, And I said, well, if I can create enough revenue, can you, can we pay me with that? And they were like, sure, buddy, good luck. And so, um, I did that. I like went and hustled selling prepaid parking cards um, to every food truck in Philly. Um, they told me don't go into 7-Eleven. It's a waste of time. I didn't listen to that. I went into 7-Eleven. I hustled that and it was like 45 7-Elevens. And then the same thing with Wawa, Conestoga Bank, ShopRite. I was, I was just knocking on doors and like wouldn't let uh, no be like the last time I talked to them. And I built, uh, I mean, we had a great team, but we went from like $40,000 in monthly revenue when I joined to when I left $500,000 in monthly revenue when we left. And I was doing all, all of that. Yeah. And we got lucky along the way too. like the parking authority doubled their rates. So our revenue like almost doubled overnight one, one month. So, but it was hard and I loved it. And I, it just reminded me of sports. It reminded me of a locker room where you knew it was hard. You were going to work till you maybe threw up, but you were going to, you loved it and you were coming back the next day and you liked being around people that went at that speed. And like, um, you couldn't be, you couldn't hide. You were exposed if you're not good at a startup. And I just like never looked back after that. But you know what else you said in there that I, that I want to call out a little bit. You said something about like after the first no, like you went in knowing that you were going to get a no and then you went back. And I think that a lot of people, think that sales is getting 
yeses. And I think what people need to realize early on is sales isn't getting yeses. Sales is getting yeses after you get noes. Totally. It's always, this helps with depression too. And like a lot of the challenges you'll have at a startup, these are, these are not, these are not a label of your personality. This is, this is an information event. If you tell me maybe, maybe I can't do anything about it. If you tell me your product's amazing, I can't do anything about it. The only things I can do are when you say no and I ask why, or when you tell me what sucks and then I can do something about it. So don't look at this as like, Oh, I'm not good enough. It's an information event. Just, just get better at it and get more information events. Yeah. That's a great way to look at it. Okay, so after that, I'm assuming you moved on to your next gig. Yeah. So, so um, uh, this, is a, this is kind of a lesson in why the vision is so important. Like one day I showed up at work and then all of a sudden our vision had changed because there was like a, a ruling with the public transit that you kind of like um, felt like we kind of threw our, our cards in and said we're not going to try. And, and in that moment, I just decided I was not showing up to this job ever again. And... I didn't think twice about it. I didn't know I was going to do that going in. And I had no idea what I was going to do. I went to Guitar Center and I bought like a $3,000 guitar and just played guitar in my <laughs> condo for weeks without a paycheck. And it was, I didn't have the money to buy a guitar. Let's just put that, right, I'm put that away. I'm gathering, yeah. And my friend who um, I've been helping with his idea, who was going through an incubator at Penn, was like, hey, I want to talk to you. Everybody keeps telling me I should talk to you about your sales process. And that's what led to me co-founding Equire with him, which was like a, a Chrome extension where you move data from Gmail and LinkedIn to a CRM. And so I was just kind of uniquely positioned to try to help there because I had to do that at, at the first company and it was a pain in the ass. And so I was like, this can't be what people do. Like I should be on the phone or meeting people, not in my CRM. And so we built a Chrome extension that just kind of did that. We, we did it um, um, over the course of a year and a half, and it got a lot of uh, great reviews. And we had 10,000 customers at one point, and um, it was just a really simple tool. And we would joke that we just sold people copy and paste for 20 bucks a month. Right. right. <laughs> and, um, and that's what it is. And, and, and I learned a lot um, at, at that organization as well. And it was, it was way more tech forward. So I was able to see where a lot of my holes were. A lot of my holes were in developing talent and understanding tech talent and just not going to be someone who's able to evaluate an engineer's um, efficacy. And that was a eye-opening experience. I, I learned so much at that company. Um, but yeah, that company's still running. It still pays some people. We still have a bunch of customers, and but I'm, I'm not um, day-to-day there anymore. Um, Cavalry was really cool. It was uh, the next company. It was on-demand copywriters. So we would write prospecting emails for you. Um, super cool. Everybody loved that concept. It's a great concept. It just, it, we found out that, and we raised a, a good amount of money for that. The idea was to, to teach an, an AI or an ML model what's working. So you could actually craft these really great personalized uh, emails based on like what that person actually cares about in an empirical way. Uh, just turned out that like it's, a really great crafted email is probably like one fifth of uh, how you can influence a sale, but it's the least important. And we looked at a comp like outreach, right? They, they kind of just send 17 emails within, within 20 days, which is like crazy to me. But if you have a good product and you get it into the right person, like they don't even read it. They just forward it to who needs to see it and, or they make a decision right there. So 
we never really got the business model right there because it just did it couldn't influence a sale enough times. So right. I had to, sh- that makes had to sense. shut that down. Yeah. And then, <laughs> well, and then I mean, at the time you're like, damn, like I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. This is pretty low. And during the time at Cavalry, I met Shane, who is, uh, you know, I hired him because I saw his profile on Hired.com, and I was like this guy's a really good designer and he's not great. He's pretty good. And, but he's only 60 bucks an hour and he should be charging 120. So (laughs) I'm going to get him in here. We're going to knock out this interface and then see you later, Shane. So when you say designer, I just want to be clear. You're talking about like wireframing or like, what are you talking about with design? So when I'm screening for, I mean, this is completely subjective, but when I have a, like a vision in mind for what I want something to look like, I'm actually screening more for like aesthetics and, and, and like what's his style and, and I'm researching his like Instagram, right? Like what's he like to hang out with? Like what's his look outlook on things? Can he like fit into our culture? And so I saw a design he did of like, um, uh, something on, on, um, his portfolio was like, um, just was really aesthetically different, but really sharp. And I I hadn't seen anything really close to that. So there was like a unique element to it. And I was like, well, at 60 bucks an hour, this is, this is a a no brainer. And so I got on a Skype phone call with him. I talked to him about like our idea. And then I would say like, I don't think it was, it might not have been a day later. I can't remember, but I got a design back from him of this really like complex interface. And I was like, Hey dude, I think you missed the, the boat here. You can't, you can't, you can't use someone else's work. And he's like, I, I did that myself. And I was like, you did, you did that yourself in an, in a day. And he was like, yeah, I was like, I don't believe you. And he's like, no, I did. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then you got to like work with him and you're like, Oh my God, this guy is like on another level with speed and like quality. And then I found out, you know, he's an incredible fine artist. He's very paradoxical, uh, in what he's able to do. And, um, I knew like, and he, I think he felt the same way is that we really loved working with each other. And that was the biggest bummer of shutting down Calvary was like, we were trying to figure out other ways to work with each other. And we we just like, couldn't get it out of the gates. And he sent me a text one day and was like, dude, check this website out. He threw up uh, a website and it was Mudwater and it was like the site we had to, we have today. And I was like, okay, I'm in, what am I doing? What are we doing? And, uh, yeah, that's that was the start of it. And what? And what? I mean, this was in like May of two thousand eighteen. Yep, right. exactly. And then, and so what? I mean, at that point, you know, and and for everyone, sort of on who's listening, I mean, from my understanding, it's a it's a simple product. You don't have a ton of SKUs. It's um, just a a combination of you know my mom's been drinking a mushroom tea since like 1968 right but this is like just the the upgraded functional kind of um really beautifully branded version um of a better for you sort of coffee replacement um and and at that point what what was it in 2018 and what and what did you do you know, when you said I'm in and what do you want me yeah. to do? What did you yeah. say? Uh, well, you, you captured it perfectly. And I think there's a little bit of, you know, I think we got lucky, but I think if there's ever like, if you ever forced me to say, well, what, you know, what was the magic or something? It was, it, there was just such an authentic charismatic origin story. Like Shane had been drinking that himself for 
two years. He, he, he didn't care about the taste. He only cared about the function and he, he couldn't get that type of, um, elixir. It was really like just coffee or like maybe four Sigmatic or something. It was like, no, I want something that like fits in my lifestyle. I'm, I'm working out two, twice or three times a day. Sometimes I work all day and then I paint at night and I can't be, have, you know, anxiety or jitters at night when I'm painting. Right. And so like, he was just drinking that himself and cause he couldn't find it out there and he selected the best ingredients. And so when we thought about doing this as a company, instead of buying them off Amazon, the ingredients off Amazon, we went to our suppliers and said, Hey, look, we know you don't do this to other companies. You want to sell bulk, but this is really special to us and really important. And they were like, cool, you know, we'll take a shot on this. And so I think that comes through in a lot of our copy and our language is because it's just so raw. This never was supposed to be a company. It was a, it was a problem we solved for ourselves first Shane, and then kind of stumbled into it because he did mushrooms one night and the next morning was like, Hey, I can do all of this myself. I can, I can design, I can code, I can throw a website up. I can build an Instagram page and like right. <laughs> run a couple, run a couple ads and see what happens. And, right. and it was, $900 in the first month of sales. And I was flying out and helping him and staying on his couch and we were packing it in his kitchen and then right. had, had to move to a commercial kitchen. And you know that we just never looked back. It just kept growing and growing and growing to uh, just crazy, not believable monthly numbers. <laughs> it's kind of, and I mean, it's, it's just, it's a little bit of like the, the CPG world, you know, they, they have, well, I guess I'm sort of in it too, but not so much like it's kind of a darling, I would say, um, you know, you just I think that I I'll say this a lot on on this show. There's there's these really great brands that don't have great businesses behind them. And then they're really strong businesses that just haven't quite figured out their brand and their audience and who they are and what they want to be when they grow up. And when you get that kind of like, you know, the yin yang and it meets and it's like right in the sweet spot, it has this like little glow to it. Um, and that's definitely what you guys have for well, sure. Thank you. That's cool to hear. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and then talk about how the success, you know, it started with the two of you guys. Um, let's start talking about how you grew your team and, and all of that. So we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Berry Bisop. Bisop is a refreshing West African spiced hibiscus tea. Berry Bisop honors and preserves the traditional recipe while adding their own twist. Berry Bisop teas are fused with organic fruit. They're all natural, caffeine-free, ethically sourced, and free from artificial coloring or any other chemicals. As for taste, they're chilled and refreshing with a hint of both sweetness and tartness. Drink them alone or mix them with seltzer or cocktails. Learn more at berrybisop.com. That's berry, B-I-S-S-A-P.com. I'm back with Paul DeJoe from Mudwater. Um, okay, so let's just let's just talk about hiring for a minute. Um, I think a lot of us who have hired and fired in the past have heard a lot of truisms, you know, um, if the company that you're looking at today isn't the company that you want 
you know, that you would hire than fire everyone, you know, <laughs> like that um, it can, it can be the, you know, biggest decision that the difference between good and great is your team. Like there are all these truisms. Yeah. Right. But when it gets down to like brass tacks, I mean, you know, the reason I put that Slack message in is we're hiring, we're doubling our team basically in Q1 now. And to me, there are some sort of like very quantifiable things that we're looking for. And especially when you're talking about someone with operations or even with sales, you know, those are like, you can put some really quantifiable things into those KPIs. A couple of jobs I find are more ambiguous a little bit, and they're a little more like qualitative, I would say. Um, But I'd like to hear sort of you know, when you kind of decided that, you know, you mentioned before the show that when you guys went to go hire, you saw it as a competitive advantage to build a great team, A, and to have that team really love working there, B. Um, and you kind of decided to make it to make it a process for yourself to read and to get educated and and I'm curious about that process and maybe a couple of the things that kind of emerged out of that process. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a really fun question for me to answer because we're just kind of coming out of it and it was hard for a while and it felt like we kind of did things the right way. A, a lot of what guided our process is, is our values. So one of our values is to start with why. So when we're creating like a project in Notion or someone has an idea, like that first line has to be why. Like, why are we doing this? And, and our first line was, and we were kind of, we were, you know, we we're getting some momentum, but we hadn't done our own values. And Shane and I were kind of trying to figure out how to get this right. And we're like, well, what is our why? And why do we want to do this? And it was like, we want good onboarding. We want uh, a, a players because we're trying to create like a, an iconic uh, brand and like change the world. And we need the best people. And we need them to, when, why do we want the best onboarding experience they've ever had? Because we want them to know how much that we've invested in this, how much this matters to us. We want them to tell their friends, like, and be proud that they joined this team. And we don't ever want to lose that, that momentum or that thread of like being best in class, which is another value that we have. And so when we sat down and said, okay, well, well, what's, what's best in class? And, and, and we just, literally jotted each step down in Asana and said, they're going to do this. They're going to get this. They're going to get this. One of those tasks or those items is we order a cameo video for you. So like your first welcome email. <laughs> it's like from the, the guy from team. the office welcoming yes. you to, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I love that. yeah. So David Keckner from the office, welcomed Joe to our team. And <laughs> we, we knew Joe liked uh, the office from his interviews and like he, that guy just killed that cameo. And Joe like replied with like, Oh my God, like, I can't believe like how cool that was. Like I'm feeling so awesome and welcome. He was just so excited to get started. He was just like, it just created that bar of what you can expect here. And like, we don't lose that. So that a lot of that stuff came from why, and and I'm happy to share like even our, our steps with everybody that that's curious, but starting from there was like, was a really cool thing. It actually made it simpler. You're just kind of like removing, you know, options. You're like, is that a great experience? No, then get rid of it and think through what's a great experience. Yep. So that, that, that really helped. But on, on the hiring side, um, yeah, like 
the book, The Who, was was really a leveling up, and it came recommended from um, our investor, and um, and then I talked to a couple other CEOs that are wildly successful, and they're like, "Yep, it guides all our hiring principles." And I was like, "What? How have I never heard of this?" And I was the guy before that, or like, "People like me, I can figure out stuff. Like, I'm I can I'm a good judge of of people. Everybody thinks that. Nobody's like, I'm terrible at that, and uh, I'm not good. Nobody says that. <laughs> no, it's so funny though. I have to say, like, I have, I am, I. You know the little emoji with the woman whose like hands are like I don't know, like that's I I feel like I have made incredible gut hiring decisions where like I've been with people for years and they've been they've blown me away, um, and I feel like I've also made literally the worst gut decisions that you could make, like hired people that not only were not, you know, sort of like eligible for my job, but like really shouldn't have been interviewing in the first place. Like, but so I have no idea. I actually have no idea if I, if, if I, and I trust my gut on a lot of things, but on hiring, I've gotten to the place where I actually am so unsure that when you gave me that book and it, and it talked about sort of move away from she seems like a good fit to like, she fits this role by this and they have these competencies, which are specifically what I've created in this like scorecard of this job. That was a big light bulb moment for me. And it helped, it helped my whole team because we came up with the scorecard together and we kept going back to it and we felt ourselves straying from it. I mean, I even before we were just talking, I feel myself straying from it a little bit. I'm like, no, no, there's a reason why we put this in. Like, exactly. What do we want this person to actually do and have accomplished by 30, 60, 90 days? Exactly. I mean, if you can pull anything from that book, it's the scorecard. And I would say, like, that's exactly how you're supposed to feel. It's supposed to, you know, bring you to those types of feelings where you're like, wait a second you know, as before you would have just been like, oh, we'll figure it out or, you know, it'll work out or I'm good. Or I like them. Like that's, you know, they call that voodoo hiring in the book, which is, I think a great, a great label for that. Um, yeah. And some people do figure it out, but I think the difference between when you're like, it, I, I come, you, you might not know this, but I come from like the world of hospitality. I had a cooking school for eight years before oh, yeah. I, did my I research. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and like in, in the food world and like restaurants, you, you, there's kind of a little bit of a known thing. Like you have your opening team and then you have your operating team and openers aren't necessarily operators and operators aren't necessarily great openers. And I feel like a lot of us are kind of, you know, at my stage, the people have been following this along for two years, you know, they kind of see when you when you start to hire for the role, as opposed to just like people who can get stuff done. And like, that, that is no longer, I, I know they'll figure it out. That's like, they got to come in knowing how to do this stuff, because there's no one on this team that can really teach them. And no one has, like, we're not in a position to be able to do that. You know, I know exactly what you mean. There's a, the progression is you're, when you start at a startup, you need commandos, you need Marines, you need just people who are borderline nuts like me. And then what happens is you get to 
when you're at scale, you're looking for mall cops and not in a bad way, like just specifically, this is your one singular thing to do. You do not, you don't have to do anything else and, 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 uh, be the best in the world at it. And that's a certain type of personality too, where you really start to see a different type of scale where someone's a specialist or, or, you know, a, a, a ninja at this one thing. And you can't do that at the beginning though. If we hired a, CFO as our second hire, he'd be like, guys, I'm not going to the commercial kitchen with you. Like I'm going to get dirty. Yeah. And you can't even afford them even if you wanted to. Exactly. I know so many people, I was talking to someone, actually he's, he's coming on in a couple months, but the, this guy, Eric, who's the head of sales at Tessame. And he was saying, you know, there was a moment where they hired sort of like super pros and it was just this like big kind of weird culture weird, not war, but just kind of like very clearly two different sides of this team. You know, one was sort of like the guys in suits and the other were like the guys in like their gear, like ready to go out and like commando. And it just was like off. It didn't, it didn't really work. Um, And so finding that in between, in between the commandos and the mall cops, uh, do you have a term for all of those different levels? <laughs> um, I, I have to dig it up, but this was something an investor taught me. It was like, uh, I got to remember the two steps in between, but I think you, you get the gist of like yes. where it makes sense. It, that's another thing that's why A players are even so critical at that early stage is that an A player is going to, they know they need to fire themselves from the job they're currently doing because you got to get it down to, get in there. It's going to be expensive when you start, when the economies start to build up, then you're going to look at this and say, this is a 10 or $20 an hour job. And I, I shouldn't be doing this anymore. I need to fire myself and think of the next thing that 10 X is us or is the biggest risk. So, yeah, no. And I mean, I think one of the things that we've realized is, you know, our job descriptions, including mine as the founder change every three months, right? Like we're, you know, I mean, everyone has, everyone has completely, if you looked at what they were doing three to four months ago, it's totally different on a day to day than what we're doing now. And I think that is probably the case for the first three to five years, I would, I would guess. I don't know. I want to ask you about, um, the defined outcomes as, as opposed to the job description, I think, you know, we thought, you know, one of our values as a company is clarity, right? Like not just transparency, but like if there's any sort of fuzziness around this, keep asking questions about it until it is really clear. And if you're talking to someone and you sense there's fuzziness, then keep keep explaining. And so we try to be really clear in processes and what's expected, what done looks like, you know, what the job description is. But that is different from what the scorecard of defined outcomes was. And that was a big sort of aha moment for me too. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So tell me if this helps a little bit. So this, the job description is definitely like something that's outwardly facing. It's like, we're trying to get people that could be interested in this, but we're not trying to disclose our scorecard in terms of like, what is like the quantifiable things that you're going to work on. Right. So it's like, 
we need you to work on getting retention um, increased by two points in the next six months, right? That's in the scorecard. That's not in the job description. So the job description is like, it's, it's very, very high level. It's very surface like kind of more, more marketing. Um, the, the scorecard is really the brass tacks and one in the one way, um, that one thing that really helped me was like uh, just a mental model of like inverting, right. When you're trying to figure out, let me give you a good example. All right. Like, um, you're trying to think about like, Hey, how do I become rich? Well, a good way to look at that is like, well, well, who, who's, who became like, um, who lost all their money? What did they do? Or how, did, what mistakes led someone to becoming not rich? And instead of focusing on that, so you're like, okay, I can't open up credit cards anymore. That's not right. Like way. North and, stars kind of. Yes. And so with us, we're like, okay, what is going to get somebody fired um, where there's no surprise to them? So at the end of that day, at the end of three, six months, whenever it is, we sit down and I, I can say, did you do this? Was this clear that this was your you know, job? And did you do this? Can I measure it? And it's, if it's a no, then they, then they, then they have to go. So you want to leave, you want to kind of structure it and you can work backwards from getting fired, right? Like if, if, and that's why the scorecard is really important to keep quantitative. I can talk to the qualitative challenges in a second with like a marketing role, but it's like, these are the things that these three to seven things or eight things that we really need at the company, they should be measurable. And if you're the person who can do that, then you're agreeing to that. We're talking through that in the interview. Then in six or eight or 12 months, whenever we said we needed this done by, we're going to come to this scorecard and this review and you're going to say, did you do that? If you didn't do that, then you're not the person for the job. And there's no ambiguity. They understand it even before it's happening or they know that, you know, during it, if they're not doing great and they need to like turn it around, they know they need to turn it around. It's no, there's no ambiguity. Well, going back to that thing about sort of quant versus qual, right? Like, so again, operations, you know, totally makes sense, you know, cogs and margins and getting orders out on time and yada, yada, yada. Sales, easy, right? Like grow this in-store, grow new accounts, trade spend, marketing, um, while you could reduce it to... Um, get this many followers and get this many conversions from, I think that there is certainly something to that. And probably more specifically with direct to consumer marketing for sure. But there's also this like intangible kind of, you know, absolutely smushier part. And, and then there's also the team. I, I've had people that were doing a perfectly good job at their job that just haven't gotten along with anybody. And those people had to go, not from the SAS company, but from the cooking school. So how do you define an outcome like that? Yeah, so they, they talk about it a little bit in the book, which is applying a time frame to it because you're spot on, right? That's, that's challenging and you can't, if you're hiring like a creative person and you're giving them like, hey, we don't know the answer to this and the answer is you have to be creative and different than anything else that's been out there. It's really hard to measure anything in that except for like the time frame. So, um, and that's, and I'll be the first to tell you, that's not still not easy. It does help though. Like we just hired two marketing roles and we had to do this. It's like, you're going to do X in six months. Like you have to do X in six months. You have to get our YouTube subscribers to this and you have to do this and this. And we looked at that YouTube subscriber 
number and we're like, I don't know if anybody's going to be able to do this, but we're going to put it out there anyway. And our guy was like, yep, I can do that. And we're like, well, cool. Because if you don't like, you got to find somewhere else to go in six months. And he's like, yep, I get it. And you're like, whoa, that was like, that was pretty <laughs> cool. Cause now I don't, now I don't have to worry about it anymore. Like all I have to do is look at the scorecard and say, we agreed to this and it didn't happen. It doesn't mean I don't like you. Just that's what we needed. I know. And I think, I think that's another thing, you know, people talk about, you know, how hiring the wrong people can mess up your business, but it's more than that. Right. It's like, it's, it starts when the team starts to get to, to sniff around a little bit, like they're not that happy with someone and you want to give it a chance and you want to show that person that you're really trying to help them do better. So you're on some sort of a, you know, remediation type of situation, but it ta- it takes a long time and it takes a lot of energy and it it creates a really uncomfortable feeling because I was using this example the other day. It's like when you're I don't know if you, you you're younger than me, but when you teach people how to drive, right? Like you want to be able to just sit there and let them take the wheel. And, but if you don't trust that they are, you're going to be like constantly sticking your hand in and being like, break, you know, stop, hold, turn. And that doesn't ever help them become a better driver. But the trust is kind of eroded. And so when you get to that place with someone on your team, it's just a really bad place to be. And I haven't seen very many people get, get back from that. Um, and, and it's hard. It's it, firing people is, is hard and there are legal issues and, you know, it, if you can avoid it, avoid it. So luckily we've kind of got some experience here and, um, there's, I'm glad you touched on legal. Let's, let's touch, let's go there first and get it out of the way. Like when you're thinking about like hiring and, or firing, like, there should be a pretty simple template and your, and your, your lawyer um, can help you figure out like if you fire someone from Texas versus California, it's completely different. If you start to pay somebody from California versus Texas, it's completely different. You really need to make sure if you get to five people that work in California, you have to have sexual harassment training, right? So like those are the types of things that you just want your law firm to be like, Guys, here's the hard and here's the hard and fast rules. This is the checklist. Like yeah. these are what you need to have in your employee handbook, etc. Get yeah. get get that out of the way very soon because w- when you do need to fire somebody, and if you're going fast and doing something important, you're going to fire somebody. Just like period. You don't want to be thinking about oh, it's another like I got to talk to legal. You want when you get to that stage, you, it's check boxes. It's very it's there's no personality involved. There's no emotional. Um, um, you know, baggage, you just go to that checklist and you follow it verbatim. And that's a really important thing because when you get to those situations, you're going to come up with like a bunch of different reasons to go slower and you're going to worry about a lot of stuff. You don't want to be worrying about that stuff. Um, the other couple things to think about are Netflix has this like amazing resource on their culture. Mm-hmm. And they say in there that their culture is who you let go. And until you experience that and you experience the cohesiveness that comes back from a, you know, to a team where there might've not been somebody that works, you will never really appreciate that. And so um, if you haven't done that, then you can't know, but you can read that article in the interim. 
another thing that we we do is we have everybody fill out a manifesto or they, they write their manifesto. Like, what do you want for your life? Um, how can we help you get there? And then we have them write out a user manual, which is like, tell us the, <laughs> tell us the situations work, yeah. <laughs> exactly where you're, where you're going to be like absolutely unapproachable and, and appear to somebody else that doesn't know you as like a, the worst person in the world. Like there's probably times where yeah. you're going to be in that zone. And mine is like, you know, um, if I feel that like I told you a couple things a couple, to do something a couple times, then you probably, and it didn't happen, like you should probably give me some time to like. Cool down. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, and that's in my manual. So when there's a, ever, there's a, you know, an issue. I love like, that. Go, go in their manual. Because I'm also definitely going to make a manual. That's such a good idea. I think that's such so a great good. idea. Yeah. I mean, we all know each other's now, but I think it's worthwhile as we double this team to everyone have a personal manifesto and personal user manual. I love that. It's super, super cool. Chris sent me a note the other day. He just, one of our recent employees, he said, I just read your user manual. I, I love the way you think we're going to have a lot of fun together. And, you know, also in the user manual is like the standard template for the user manuals is like a conflict resolution, right? So if you have a challenge with somebody, um, we, we have a, we have a, a rule or like a, um, uh, what, what do we want to call it? Value where there's absolutely no talking behind people's backs. It's a fireable offense. And you can go to your manager or a teammate one time to help you formulate the thought, but then your next step is talking to that person directly. And if you just follow the same language <laughs> that we have in the manual, there's literally always a resolution. It's like, hey, I didn't feel great about this, and it could have. I feel like this happened and this happened, and it didn't make me feel great. It's like immediately comes down. No, I love that. All right. We, I have a couple more questions about the hiring and then the last like 12 minutes are going to be on onboarding and firing. Okay. Um, finding the right people. Um, we have found that this process has been very tiring and um, we, you know, we did pre-screening. We, you know, we tried to um, not have it sort of consume our lives, but you know, everyone's having three to four interviews. Those interviews are probably an hour plus each. Um, you know, did you find that, you know, we thought maybe we should do all our interviews on one day of the week so that, you know, we all have time to like really do our homework before then and like really be in like the interviewing mindset as opposed to kind of having them scattered throughout the week. Like, did you find any best practices for uh, that? Uh, great question. Like I, I'd be reticent to say they are best practices, but we did learn a couple of things that we definitely wanted to switch. And one of those is like, see like the who needs a, an update that I think you should follow like 85% of the who, and then you should, do your own spin for the last 15 minutes uh, or sorry, the last 15% because there's like the who is set up to it's great, but it's, you know, I think it leans towards like C level people yeah, where you're flying, they're flying in and they're meeting a whole team in one day. That's just completely ridiculous for a startup and even in COVID. Right. And so, and then the other thing you have to think about is if you're interviewing really great people, like don't put them in a spot where they have to tell their 
job, you know, three times in a week that they need another three hours out. Like you, you, there's nothing wrong with somebody interviewing with you. That's working somewhere else. That's where your best people are going to be at. Just don't put them in a rough spot and like, don't get to the interview or the reference questions um, until you're like, I'm pretty sure I want to hire this guy or one other guy. And um, so we learned that. Um, but yeah, like in terms of the funnel, it, it's just, you know, it's one of those things where it's one of the hardest things you ever do. And it, it's just so defining. It's so like um, defining as like a, a leader, a culture. It's really hard. And if you can separate yourself from the, um, the pack because you've, you developed this skill set, you really are an incredible asset. And I think the way that you develop that skill set is like being, being um, intelligent about um, your funnel and your sources. Like ours, a lot of ours come from our investor update because we do a monthly update every month and we ask people and then we'll sit on LinkedIn and we'll go try to reach out and, and poach. And I don't like that word, but no, like, no, I mean, listen, I, I feel the same way. And, and, and one kind of exception I took to the book a little bit was, was this talk about culture? Um, because I think that, Culture, unfortunately, in the last couple of years has been a little adulterated into they went to similar schools, they were in similar crews, they also love CrossFit or yoga or whatever you want to, right? And <laughs> yep. that's, I'm, I'm really trying in this round to, I mean, I was on LinkedIn, I would say five hours a day over the last several weekends, just finding rabbit holes to people that looked like they could potentially be good fits or could know good fits. And actually it's been really fun because I've met really interesting people along the way who are not at all either interested in this job or like even like the right person at all for this job, but they've either introduced me to someone or now we're, you know, friendly. Um, but I culture, there's got to be a better word, right? Because like, it's, you know, yeah. someone who doesn't necessarily have have the crew that you have or know the same people. Like, I think it's really important as founders, especially right now, that we are reaching far and wide outside of our little VC circles. Um, you know, and I, I guess thoughts about that. Yeah, well, so like this is one of my favorite topics. Like two two of our employees, um, one of them was a was an EMT. He was he was uh, I think twenty when he first sent us his first email of of what would be like thirty, trying to get us to hire him as a, as a as a uh, as an intern. And we said, you know what, Garrett, just okay, whatever, show up at this um, place and like so we can meet you, and then you're going to sweep. We, our office was in Crenshaw. Like his first job with us was sweeping heroin needles and like fixing our fridge and scrubbing pots. And then like, occasionally we would let him read some marketing stuff and he was always there first. He was always there last. Didn't say a word, just grinded. And like, he's our marketing coordinator now and I can't say enough good things about him. He represents our culture in a way that I often don't many times. He is such a rock to our culture. And that's just a guy who comes in literally no maintenance and does everything we ask and more. He's always there for you. He knows where everything's at. He's very quick. He's just a great human. And the same thing with Jesse. 
Jesse was, we found Jesse on Upwork. She was $10 an hour every week. I was wow. like, this person is ridiculous. Like how, where did she come from? She lives in Michigan and she's now like um, a, a concierge lead for whole CS team. And she's managing wholesale and Amazon. And she, she came in and just same stuff, right? Like you're building culture around, you don't need to hire a C-level person with, with entitlement. You can build a culture around someone who's like, give me something to do because I love your brand and like, let me just knock it out of the park. And they don't even ask for money. They're just like, let me get in and show you what I can do. And that's how you can build a defensible culture if you do it around values and you have a clear, concise, like, hey, here's what we want you to do. But no matter what, we want everybody who comes in the company to see you and how you do things because you, we know you will not let the bar down in these areas. And speaking of that, so, you know, um, onboarding, right? I mean, you're, I, again, I have this like almost maniacal, like I want them to know not only why they are doing what they're doing, but how it attaches to why everyone else is doing what everyone else is doing and why that all, and what the end goal is. Like I go why, and then why, and then why, and then why. Um, and I feel like that is doable, um, right now, because I'm personally onboarding everyone that comes on, right? And we'll be a team of eight, and that's great. But what happens at a team of 15? And what happens at a team of 50? And, um, you know, how do you, I mean, just even in the pandemic, like there's no, there's no looking into someone's eyes and like having a drink with them or, you know, hanging out. I mean, you know, what do you think in terms of onboarding and checking in and making sure people are feeling connected and heard and comfortable, you know, some tips there? Yeah. I mean, what a, what a very difficult challenge, right? Not to be able to see someone you're going to spend, you know, a lot of hours of your week with in person and see their, you know, little, uh, ways that they just deal with any sort of like challenging question or how they think or how they like brighten up when you ask them, right. That's, that sucks. Um, the, I'd say the first thing is at the end of the, um, you know, what the last interviews that you're doing f from the who book, you're, you're kind of doing a little bit of the culture, um, stuff where, we instruct the team that like, Hey, the, listen, the, the answers are already really kind of answered. You're all going to ask just one or two questions. And then we're really just trying to let this person feel comfortable and like have fun, ask about a lot of other things. So it's a really, um, it's a really great opportunity at that stage of the interview to let them relax a little bit and like let them feel out the other people in their real form. Like you're not, they're not getting interviewed anymore. They're talking about things that they're interested in and like where they want to go on a trip next. And that's really, really cool. And then what we do as um, a team is that the first Wednesday, well, the first, um, you know, Shane and I don't really do uh, a majority of the onboarding anymore. We have like a, we have it set up in gusto and then we have someone who kind of oversees the steps are happening and, and you can set it up. So it does feel still very personal and it is but one thing we do is shane will work with them to go through their manifesto and tell them about it and their user manual and like they we give them a full day to like go do that and then we regroup with them and talk to them about it and that's just such a fun way to get yeah to it's like a great way even a deeper level that you're going to get over at a happy hour you know like what do you want to do with your life because we want to be agents of that goal for you and people aren't used to that and they, it blows them away when you start that way and so 
there's ways you can get deeper than, you know, Hey, let's meet up for this. And then on the, in the first Wednesday that they join, we do a team wide breathwork session. So someone leads breathwork as a team and we kind of all, we all go around before it starts and say what we do, what we're working on. Like in last one was like, what are some, what's some music you were listening to today? And so you can create these little like really meaningful conversations. Whereas like before it's like, Oh, we're supposed to get to know these guys. So let's go to drink. That's more of a formality. It's like, well, what do you really want to know about this person at a, at a deeper level? And if you let that guide you, you can really kind of break those barriers of that COVID has kind of presented. No, I think that's awesome. Okay. Last couple minutes. Um, I did go on the Mudwater website. Um, I did look at your team page you um, do people's income taxes for them. Everyone has every other Friday off. There's unlimited vacation, which we are going over to also. You pay for everyone to go on a trip to a dream location. Uh, they have the $200 a month wellness budget. I, I didn't even put the aura ring in, but I know you give everyone an aura ring. Yeah. Um, can you keep that going forever? Like, and And what have you found? I mean... I feel like basically it's like anything else again, coming from hospitality. People want to feel heard. They want to, they want to feel like they can bring their whole self, right? It's not, there's no delineation anymore, but these are like perks. Like these are real, <laughs> like sending someone on a trip every year from a dream location. I'm like, uh, could we do that? Like, is that, I don't even know, you know? So tell me about, tell me about the ones that really the ones that really work and, and the ones that, you know, are yeah. fun, but you know, I'll go, I'll go quick because, um, there's a couple things that are important here. One is I, you know, I do believe we have product market fit, which is like, if you looked at us and said, well, why is mud doing so well? Well, they do this for their employees. No, it doesn't work that way. Like we are able to do this because we have product market fit and because we're growing. And if we didn't, there's, there's just no way. I, I don't think I could justify like the cost, but you know, it'd still just be me and Shane in a commercial kitchen, like not going on vacation. And so we have that. And and so that's really important. Right. Um, and then don't the do that thing, before you have. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. Just get product market fit. Don't move your, leave your desk until you figure that out. Um, so in, in terms of, you know, the data is out that um, uh, unlimited vacations don't work because people view that as if you're in a competitive environment people view that as a way to <laughs> get better while someone else is gone right. <laughs> or like they love their job and like if no one else is taking it so you actually have to when we found this out kind of like the hard way yeah like, why is everybody's yeah, yeah you have to you have to actually say you're going on vacation this this month so pick a spot right now because we're going to book it for you and so um, and that's, and that's another reason flex Friday came up was because when you have like a players and they're just like absolute killers, they won't stop. You're it's actually now your responsibility to make sure that they're re- resting and recouping like an athlete, like they need to check out, they need to turn their screens off. And that's a huge investment for us. Like that's a, that's nothing compared to what we get when, when they're rested. So we really do like force them to go check out. They can always come back with great ideas. They're energized. They're all happy. Like, why wouldn't you do that as much as you can? Yeah, no, I think that's great. Okay. Um, Paul, honestly, like we're going to have to do unhiring in another one because (laughs) we've just gotten like, I love when I take like gazillions of notes all over the the page. Um, 
Thank you so much for coming on. Um, everyone, go to mudwtr.com. Um, that's where Mudwater is. Instagram is at Drink Mudwater, yep. but mudwtr. Um, it's mud with a backslash wtr. Um, and I just really thank you so much. I think we're going to be friends. <laughs> I just have this funny feeling we're going to just keep talking. I um, hope so. I've got a yeah. lot of questions for you too. So well, like, let's I, do it again, maybe. Yeah, totally. Um, Amanda, thank you for being the best engineer. <laughs> um, everyone who's listening, thank you guys as always for all of your great comments and DMs and thoughts and questions. Um, and I also appreciate everyone recommending guests who I should have on. We are booked solid through July and, awesome. um, I can't, I just can't think past July. So thank you. And if I don't write back, it's just because, you know, I'm hiring people right now and I can't, <laughs> and I can't. um, but thank you again, Paul. And, um, I'll be back next week with another episode of in the sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>